Heavenly Father, when we think of our salvation, we recognize that it is all of you. We contribute sin, which results in condemnation. You contribute your son as our sacrifice for sin and give to us righteousness. And along with that, you hold on to us and never will let us go. Because of that, Lord, we worship you today. We lift up our voices in praise and gratitude and pray that this so great a salvation that you've given us in Christ would be our daily song, would be the heartbeat of our hope, would motivate our steps through all the challenges and trials of life. May we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, until we see him face to face and we are like him, for we will see him as he is. Bless during this time in your word, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In college, I had an English lit class in which I had to memorize a poem from the famous English poet John Donne, who was a scholar and a soldier, later became a cleric at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was born in the late 1500s and passed away in the early 1600s, but became one of the most famous poets England ever produced. Apparently during that day in small towns, if a person died, they would ring the church bells, which would alert to the people that there had been this natural phenomenon, which was still heartbreaking. In light of that, John Donne wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if thy fine house or your friend's house were taken away. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for who the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Every funeral is a reminder of the bell tolling for us and that death is this part of life that is indeed so unnatural. It's important for us to see that we are in solidarity with mankind in this thing called death. There's no escaping it. There's no avoiding it. We can only prepare for it. In America, it is common to ignore it as though it would never come. But come it will, for it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. But the good news is this. Jesus Christ died to put death to death. And those who put their faith and trust in him live forever. 
That's really the heart of what we read in Romans chapter five. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Romans five. We'll have most of the scripture on the screen. Romans chapter five, Paul already was, has been talking about the benefits of justification, the fruit of justification, if you will, and how we have peace with God and we have hope in God and we have access to God because of what Christ has done for us, that God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the father who loves us who sent his son to die for us, gives us his spirit within us to pour out the love of God constantly in our souls. Truly, we are not enjoying this relationship as well as we should. But in light of all of that rich truth, verse 12 starts out with, therefore. Going back to the illustrations of the first 11 verses, because all of this is true, we need to understand that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so in this way and in this way, death came to all people, all men, all mankind, because all have sinned. Some have said that this portion of scripture from 12 to 21 in Romans 5 is one of the most confusing and difficult. And indeed, Paul seems to go back and forth with his reasoning. But it's pretty simple if we look at the major points that are being made. And first of all, Paul wants to talk about the ruin of the human race. It happened when sin entered into the world and it was the the act of one man. Now that man is unnamed at this point, but we know him to be Adam and he will be identified a little bit later on in the text. It is important to remember that sin did not originate with Adam. For 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 tells us that the devil sinned from the very beginning. He's the author of sin. He's the father of lies. Now, Adam didn't originate sin. He just introduced it to the human race. And the result of the sin of Adam was death. Remember in the garden? This takes us back to that old story of Genesis 2 and 3, where God placed Adam and Eve in this wonderful garden and gave them an unbelievable command, an unbelievable offer and invitation to eat of any of the trees abundance beyond all that the heart could take in. But there was one tree they shouldn't eat of. And whenever there is a prohibition, it often ignites in us the desire to take. Now, Adam was innocent at this point, and yet he was on probational ground. Adam and Eve were told in chapter 2, verse 17, if they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died. Now you say, well, wait a minute, they didn't die. Well, there are three kinds of death. There's a spiritual death when you're separated from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says we're all born into this state of spiritual death. There is a physical death when you're separated from the living 
And then there is eternal death where you are separated from God and the living forever. And all three of those phases began immediately separated from God, ultimately physically dying, and then finally eternal death unless something intervenes to rescue fallen man. Corruption invades the human race. We're all infected with death and sin. And according to this verse, death is the result of sin. So in Job 18, we're told that death is the king of terrors. And Hebrews chapter two, those who all their lives have been captive to this fear of death cannot ultimately find release in Christ. The fear of death hangs over the world. And so in the midst of this situation, death grabs hold of man. Remember, this was a never, never original part of God's plan. Death is the last enemy, we're told in 1 Corinthians. And God will deal with death. But human history shows we're slaves of it. I went online and it's hard to find hard facts, but it seemed to imply that there are 67 million people who die every year, which is like two or three every second, which means in a 30 minute message, 5,000 people. We don't think about it all that much until it hits home and we're forced to grapple with it. But death is universal. I read about an undertaker who used to sign his letters, eventually yours. <laughs> it's a bit macabre, but it gets the point across. There's no escaping death. It's interesting to note and in this way, the verse says, so Adam sins, and by his sin, death is brought into existence. And by this way, death passes to everyone. Because everyone is a sinner. And now we realize something that is going to be fleshed out a little bit later on in the text, and that is this, that this one unnamed at this point, Adam, is the father of the human race. We could call him a covenant head or a federal representative. Someone who is standing in the place duly constituted to represent those who follow. The group that he leads or connects. And here it's the entire human race. So Adam wasn't acting for Adam alone. Adam was acting, get this, for Adam, mankind. For the name Adam means man. He wasn't there representing only himself. He was there representing all of mankind. And Adam's sin implicates us and infects us. And because of that, Death passes to all people. 
because all have sinned. The ruin of mankind, death by sin. That's the situation. No one knows exactly how that sin is passed on through our nature. Old M.R. Dahan, an, M, uh, uh, an MD, medical doctor, but also a great theologian who pastored the great Calvary Church in Grand Rapids for many years, he wrote a book on the chemistry of the blood, and he felt that our sinful nature was passed through the blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. It may be that the scripture doesn't say anything about that. All we know is this, Adam is the father of the whole human race, and like father, like son, and like father, like daughter, and whatever that DNA, that spiritual corrupt nature is, now in Adam is the very nature he passes on to everyone. And we get it from our father. You say, that's not fair. Why? Because if I would have been there, I wouldn't have sinned. So sings Lancelot. Have I, have I had been in the Garden of Eden, we'd be in Eden still. Nah, God knew you would sin too, so it was his mercy that he let one person represent us in sin, as we're going to see, so he could allow one person to represent us in life. The mercy of God is utterly Amazing. Bengal, the great Bible teacher, said Adam's sin was the root and we are the offshoots. And in this mysterious and terrible way, Adam's sin becomes ours. We sin in Adam and we suffer the consequences. Now, verse 13 and 14 are almost a footnote to verse 12. To be sure, verse 13 says, Sin is in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone where there is no law. In other words, sin was still going on and guilt was the result, but there was no law to say that something shouldn't be done. And so the record, as it were, was not kept or it wasn't counted against them. It was an unusual period from Adam to Moses. In fact, verse 14 says, nevertheless, death reigned. Even though you weren't counting sins because there was no law, death reigned from the time of Adam, creation, to the time of Moses, the law. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. That is, there was no command given, so there was no clear command to break. Adam broke a clear command, and even though we don't follow his likeness in sin, we're still sinners because we sin. And even though the law was covert, one day it will be overt, and that will intensify our sin or make us more aware of our rebellion. But look at that word reign. You're going to see it about five times in this text. Death reigned. It's actually the verbal form of king, one who rules with final authority. 
And sin and death like a tyrant, when they take over, control all their subjects. And we indeed become slaves. Slaves to sin. So we have the nature of Adam in us, which simply means that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. The nature comes first. And the proof of the pudding is that we are sinners by nature, is that we sin. And we say amen to what Adam did and implicate our own selves before the holy throne of God. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which we're going to be uh, dealing with, some groups are studying it right now, and at the end of the year, there's going to be a musical on it. It's going to be, I think, a, a pretty amazing production, a lot of work going in on it. But you need to read Pilgrim's Progress. And in the very first book, in this allegory, Faithful runs into the aged Adam. Adam lures him away from the path of life with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But then, truth breaks upon faithful, and this is what he says. Then it came burning hot into my mind that whatever Adam said, and however he flattered, when he got me to his house, he would sell me for a slave. And that's what sin does. Flatters until we give in, take the bait, and we are slaves forever. By the way, and we won't go into the detail of this, but there's an attack today on the historicity of Adam as a real person. But you cannot have a real Christ and a mythical Adam and follow through the text that we're going to see. Because it is dependent upon the fact that there was a real man who is the progenitor of the entire race, and there is a real Christ who died for our sin and rose again. If those things are mythical, you and I are in big trouble, and this whole thing's a dream. But they're true. And Adam lived. And he brought sin into the world. But here's the kicker. When you come to the end of verse 14, it says that Adam is a pattern of the one to come. Now the sense of the whole text takes on a different perspective. It's going to be an extended um, comparison between The one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus, and get the language, the one will affect the many, for both of them are representatives of a large race, and what the one does affects the many under them. In fact, there are only two categories. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And Paul makes this abundantly clear when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In Adam or in Christ, and here Paul explains what it means to be in Adam and explains what it is to be in Christ. Christ or Adam is a pattern, a tupas, a type. Back in that day, a type was uh, something that received an impression maybe by a stamp 
or by a metal die. And the impression then was the exact pattern of whatever the die was. So Christ is also going to be a pattern like Adam is. Now that's the only analogy that uh, is, is true of both of them for in the rest of the, of the consideration, the contrast, comparison, Jesus is the antitype. He's the cure. Adam's the cause. Jesus comes and he gives to us life over the death that already is in our hearts that has affected us. So look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. Two very important words, gift, charisma, trespass is a Greek word that is often used for sin. It means to go over a known boundary line. The gift comes from Christ. The trespass, of course, comes from Adam. And so now he begins to tell us in clear analogies that the two are not exactly the same. There's this analogy of contrast. For the gift is much greater than the trespass. He goes on to say in verse 15, for if the many died by the trespass of one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace from the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So now both of these prototypes, these federal heads, these leaders of a race are introduced, Adam and Christ. And together, Adam the trespass, Christ the gift of grace. But in the comparison, notice this phrase, how much more? An argument often used by the rabbis. And Paul picks it up in his own teaching multiple times in the book of Romans, three times in this text. If this was true, how much more, how much greater effect will Christ have? The answer, infinitely greater. For Christ will do far more good than Adam ever could do with his sin. And the effect of grace and the gift far greater than the effect of the trespass. Now, don't minimize the effect of the trespass because in Adam, we're all born from Adam. In Adam, we sinned. And the sin brought death. And we continue to prove we're sinners by our acts of sin. That was great, but how much greater is God's grace? Dear Christian friend, listen up. God's grace is greater than all your sin. Say, Pastor, you don't know. My sin's pretty great. No, I don't know all your sin, but I do know this. You're a great sinner. I know that's true, because so am I. But Jesus is a greater Savior. His grace is greater than your sin. So why do you live in the mire of guilt and condemnation from the first Adam 
instead of finding life and grace from the last Adam, as they're called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God's charisma, God's grace comes and gives us deliverance. And notice the word overflow. The word abundance or overflow is used, or words similar to that from a similar original word, to emphasize the great work of God's salvation. God's grace, it's a gift of grace, we don't deserve it, and how much more does it come to us in great power? It was John Calvin who said, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Death's power can be broken. Christ's power can never be broken. And so Paul wants us to know that, yes, devastated, ruined by the fall, but rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ and the amazing, abundant gift of his grace. Adam's sin, in one sense, is multidimensional, He sins, we sin, he dies, we die. But with Christ, his righteousness is multifaceted because it overflows. And it is an abundant provision of grace coming to us. By the way, Jesus doesn't just repair us for our sin, just forgive us. He makes us righteous. And we don't deserve that at all. Notice verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. For judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many transpasses and brought justification. The point is, again, the amazing overflowing grace of God. For Adam sinned once. And death came to the many. We sin many times, but the gift of grace overcomes them all. And we're justified freely by his grace. So think of it. The gift of God comes by grace. The gift of God follows our many sins. The gift of God reigns in our lives Where death once reigned, verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now the gift is called not just the gift of grace, but the gift of righteousness. We get something we don't deserve, and we get the perfect righteousness of Jesus given to us, which has been Paul's argument all along. By faith, righteousness comes to us. So that life reigns in Christ and those who know Christ. The thing that's been affecting me as I study these portions of scripture is that in light of all of this truth, how come we live such pitiful lives? (laughs) Because of God's abundant 
grace, how come, how come we're rather down and defeated? How come we're walking along through this earth as though God has left us and the world has taken control? If it has taken control, it's only because God has allowed it for a period of time for a purpose. And this is the time where lights shine the best in darkness. God's still on the throne and his purpose has not been altered. And we need to live like it. Grace in life reigns in us. Again, it's the reign of a king with final authority where it used to be death who would call the shots. Now it's grace and Christ who rules our life. It's like there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new king enthroned in my soul. And it's a delight to serve him. By the way, mankind has to come to the fact that it's not a question of if they will be controlled, but by whom. That's one of the things that this world does not want to acknowledge at all, that they are under the control of their own sin, held captive, slaves to fear, bound for death, under the control of the king of death. Oh, they don't like to acknowledge that. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And in most cases, Satan would say, that's exactly what I want you to do. Oh, but when you come to Christ, there's a freedom because death has been broken. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death has met its match. And the law which once ruled over us to condemn us is now a law fulfilled by the Savior for us. It's interesting when you come to verse 18. Consequently, and this seems to be summing up the paragraph, just one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. So also, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And you will be amazed how many people read that verse and come up with a doctrine of universalism. The whole idea that this astounding grace must finally issue in the salvation of every soul. It's unthinkable, said one author, that this powerful grace will end up without eschatological universalism. The last day, everyone gets saved. Almost sounds like that, except you forgot verse 17. Death reigns through the one man, but how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? There it is. You see, yes, there are two people Two federal heads, two representatives, and they are leading a group of people under them. 
But it's not universal. Every person is under Adam. That's universal for we have all sinned, but not every person is under Christ. It's only those, verse 17, who have received the abundance of God's grace. One of the church fathers, Chrysanthem, said many years ago, as Adam became a source of death to those who were born of him, although they had not eaten the fruit themselves, So Christ has become the provider of righteousness to those who are born to him, to those who belong to him, although they have not performed the righteousness themselves. So all Christians are in Adam, but not everyone in Adam is in Christ. Everyone is born in Adam, but you have to be born again to be in Christ. So these statements aren't universal in the sense that everyone will be saved. It's saying that everyone who has received God's abundant provision of grace will be redeemed. The human, mankind, we stand at the crossroads of decision. Some people will say the word receive is not a good word to talk about coming to Christ, but I differ. It's used in John chapter one, verse 12, but to as many as received him. And it's used here in Romans by Paul. Those who receive, you've got to believe, you've got to receive, and that by the grace of God. But then the gift leads to righteousness. Look at verse 19, and here with perfect parallelism, and maybe if you're gonna memorize one verse in this section to understand the whole, here it is. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Jesus obeyed the Father by dying on the cross for our sins, And he was raised again. He obeyed the Father in everything he did in his life. Notice in verse 19, it talks about those who were made sinners. And the same verb, made righteous. It's by the grace of God. You didn't participate in becoming a sinner. And what Jesus did was done outside of you. It's not your work that leads to your salvation. This must have been a tough blow to the Jews who were listening to Paul and to any moralist who thinks that their good works will be enough to gain eternal life. Adam disobeyed God and many became sinners. Jesus obeyed God and many people become righteous. Now the law, verse 13, that was unknown, verse 20, was brought in under Moses so that the trespass might abound. So there was still law, even though people, there was no law given, there was still sin and there was still guilt. But when the law comes in, it intensifies our guilt, right? It becomes a trespass. 
Chuck Swindoll gives a, a very interesting story about when he was a boy, he was uh, delivering papers, as many young boys did, and he didn't particularly like the job. But he had to do it, and so he'd get on his bike and do his paper route, and to try to make things go more quickly, there was one particular house on the corner, and instead of going around on the street, he would cut across the grass. Oh, no. He did it. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> And he did it every day. And soon there was a path. Now I suppose he knew in his mind this is not the right thing to do, but he still did it anyhow. And then one day he was coming up to that same corner and there was a sign there. Keep off the grass, no bikes allowed. So what did he do? Still rode over the path. And as he went around the corner, there was the owner of the sign and the owner of the house standing there. And Chuck said he shared his heart with me. <laughs> he was offending the owner, even though there maybe wasn't any law, but in conscience, he knew what he was doing wasn't right. But now there's a sign there, and what does he do? He just keeps going because it's inbred in our nature. The law ignites sin, but grace ignites righteousness. And then this wonderful phrase, boy, underscore this in your Bible, memorize it and put it in your soul. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I think I quoted the old King James. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace conquers. John Bunyan wrote his autobiography with the title, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace not only outweighs our sin, it overwhelms it. Now think through this text. Adam brings death because of his trespass and sin. He breaks the law, he disobeys, judgment is the verdict, death and condemnation is the result, but Christ obeys God and gives to us the gift of grace which causes life to reign in our soul and we are justified. Death is the king of terrors but never forget that Jesus is the king of kings and he's conquered death for us and when you receive the gift of his abundant grace, his son, life is yours. Because where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. There was a man who grew up in a home of a seafaring captain and decided to follow his father's ways and went to sea. His mother was a Christian and didn't want him to go and prayed for him constantly, but that didn't stop him from being foul in mouth and in life. John Newton did everything he could to experience satisfaction in his senses and became a captain of a ship that sold slaves. He himself was a slave for a period of time when things backfired, but he got back on his feet and continued his ways, but his mother's prayers dogged him. <laughs> and then when he was on 
a ship one time in a violent storm and he'd been thinking about his relationship with God. Lord, how can you save me? I'm such a great sinner. And these words where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, came to his soul. And he trusted Christ. And he penned a hymn that we love. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I hope you see today that in Adam you die, but in Christ, by his grace, you're justified and you live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we acknowledge our sin and that we are the wretched person, that we have followed in our Father's footsteps. We do as Adam did, we disobey. We sin because we're sinners at heart. But there's the last Adam who has come now to change all of that, to reverse the course of sin and judgment. And for all who receive the abundant provision of his grace in the person of Jesus Christ, will find life reigning instead of death and hope instead of despair. I pray someone will trust you this morning and that every believer will learn to live in the light of your abundant grace. In Jesus' name, amen.